Hello and welcome back to Well With My Soul, the podcast from Seven Vineyard about spiritual and emotional health. My name is Bern Leckie and today I'm bringing you a talk by Owen Lynch, co-lead pastor at Seven Vineyard. And it's about a topic which means a lot to me. It's been a very emotional thing in my life. Um, I haven't always felt it was good for my health, spiritual or emotional, but I can't deny how important it's been in making me who I am. We're talking about family. Owen is going to share a bit about his and a lot about some really unusual families in the Bible. I wonder what you're going to think about their stories. Will they just seem like people who are a long time ago, far, far away? Or will you spot anything that you relate to in your family and how it's shaped who you are today? Hmm. Next week, our panel will return to chat about all this and how it's felt to them. But for now, thanks for being here to listen along with us. Here's Owen Lynch. Good morning. Two weeks ago, uh, I started a box set series, a mini box set series, uh, as part of our intention to build Seven back better as we come out of the COVID pandemic. It's called uh, Emotionally Healthy Church. It's part of our Build Back Better series. And it's based on um, a series of talks by my friend Jay Pathak, who leads Mile High Vineyard in Colorado, and books by Pete Scazzaro. And um, if you missed episode one of this mini-series, then you can listen to it on our YouTube and Facebook channels. Now, this week, I want to talk about uh, the way in which our family of origin influences us. And, uh, you know, whilst finding out about our ancestors uh, might seem to be big business, uh, the reality is that many of us throw off the past in pursuit of the future. Now it might be because every generation seeks to do things in new ways. It might be because technology is now transforming our lives so rapidly, like my coffee machine here. But it might also be because it's just too painful. Uh, Perhaps there's too much tragedy, conflict or shame associated with your parents, your grandparents or your great grandparents. And so really, it's just best left in the past. But if we're honest with ourselves though, the person we have become is more influenced um, by our past than we might like to admit. Sociologists and counsellors are clear that our emotional health is significantly affected by patterns of behaviour that pass from one generation to the next, often without any modification. But that's not rocket science. Everyone's family has patterns of behaviour that pass from one generation to the next. Let's be honest, how many times have you been compared to your aunt or your uncle by one of your parents? Or perhaps how many times has your spouse, well, how many times has your spouse said to you, you're just like your mother or you're just like your father? If you haven't said that and you're newly married, then don't go there. Not worth trying that one. The Bible would say to us that things uh, pass not just from one generation to the next, but through multiple generations and patterns of behavior can actually last quite a long time. Moses, who is the uh, leader of Israel and his chief lawmaker, he's like their prime minister. um, He says in the Ten Commandments that the behavior of one generation uh, can have a big impact on subsequent generations, both good and bad. Have a look at Exodus 20 for that. A recent UNICEF report states that the first five years of a child's life are fundamentally important, with the three years being especially critical in shaping a child's brain. It says this, that children learn more quickly during their early years than at any other time in their life. They need love and nurturing to develop a sense of trust and security that turns into confidence 
as they grow. Now, we instinctively know this, right? Parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles are directly responsible for the formation of every single human being in the first three, five years of their life. And let's be honest, that's a huge responsibility. And anyone that's been a new parent understands the weight of that responsibility when you leave the maternity hospital and you get in the car and you look in the back and you've got a baby there that's entirely dependent on you. That's how we felt anyway when we had our first Jake. Now, uh, is it any wonder, therefore, uh, that Moses warns the members of the 12 tribes of Israel descended from Abraham that their behavior will not just have consequences for them, but it will have consequences for subsequent generations as well. I think Moses has in mind uh, some of his more famous ancestors, uh, Abraham, um, Isaac and Jacob. If you're not familiar with their story, Abraham is a Sumerian boy from southern Iraq who born, was born around about 2,000 years ago, scholars think. And at some point in his life, he has a conversation with God, who we know as Yahweh. And he, God tells him that he wants to have a special relationship with Abraham and with his descendants. Um, and that, that his descendants will be like so numerous, there'll be like more of them than there are grains of sand on the sea. Sure, which is obviously um, a metaphor, but a pretty impressive one at that. Uh, Isaac is uh, Abraham's son and Jacob is Abraham's grandson born to Isaac. Now, despite the reverence with which uh, these three men are held by both Muslims, Jews and Christians, their family had all sorts of weird dynamics going on. And one of the traits that seems to run through all of the generations, particularly these three generations, is the habit of lying when under pressure. Now, as was common in the Middle East, there was a famine. And uh, so Abraham takes his household uh, on the road to Egypt because there, there's food there and, and he thinks that that's where he'll be able to secure his family during this famine. And thinking that his beautiful wife Sarah would attract the attention of other men in these foreign lands, he pretends that she is his sister so that, uh, so that he won't get killed in order for them to take Sarah. Um, but as always happens when we lie, um, things tend to get a bit out of hand. And uh, we're going to read from Genesis 20, verses 1 to 5. Now, Abraham moved on from there to the region of Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. Don't worry about the geography, it's somewhere near Egypt. For a while, he stayed in Gerar and lived there. And Abraham said of his wife, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah, his wife, and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, you are as good as dead because the woman you've taken, well, she's a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did Abraham not say to me, she is my sister? And did Sarah say also, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clear hands. So Abraham would rather uh, risk um, his wife being uh, forced into marriage and, and raped um, than risk his, his own life. Thankfully though, in this situation, God intervenes and Abimelech is an honorable man and Sarah is spared from the consequences of Abraham's cowardice and deceit. But bizarrely, history repeats itself with his son Isaac. There's another famine and Isaac once again takes his family south and try, to try and find food. And uh, he encounters uh, another uh, Abimelech. And now Abimelech, it seems that scholars think that Abimelech is actually rather than the king's personal name, it's actually the title. So it's a different, a different Abimelech. 
um, same area of Gerar. And, uh, and this is what happens in Genesis 26, verses 7 to 10. When the men of that place asked him, that is Isaac, about his wife, he said, she is my sister, because he was afraid to say that she is my wife, because he thought that the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah, because she's so beautiful. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she is really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? Isaac answered, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, what is this that you've done to us? One of our men might have well have slept with your wife and you would have brought guilt on all of us. You see, they lived in an honor and shame society and that was really important. So Isaac displays the same cowardice and deceit in exposing his wife to possible marriage, possible, uh, sorry, forced marriage and possible rape and also possibly creating huge conflict with Abimelech and his people. But it lies in the deceit doesn't stop there. Jacob is uh, one of the twins born to Isaac and Rebekah, the other boy being called Esau. And Jacob is born after Esau and comes out holding Esau's heel. And so bizarrely, they add, um, they, they attach a meaning, mom and dad attach a meaning to this, uh, this weird situation where one of the twins is grasping the other, uh, the other twins heel as they are born. And they, they call Jacob the deceiver, which is what Jacob means. It means he will be a deceiver. So uh, um, maybe they're already aware of the, 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 the uh, trait of deception that runs through their family. But Jacob lived up to his name and deceived his father. They should have known better, but he deceived his father Isaac into giving him um, the firstborn inheritance, the larger inheritance and family title that would have been given usually to the firstborn, which was Esau. And, uh, uh, Jacob's already done a deal with Esau to, 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 to purchase the larger inheritance and title, which I don't really think Esau understands what Jacob's doing uh, because afterwards he's not happy at all. But what goes around comes around, as they say, and uh, Jacob himself is uh, a victim of deception. Later in his life, uh, 10 of his 12 sons conspire to lie to Jacob that his favorite son, Joseph, has died when in reality, although they, they, they intended to murder him, um, they came to their senses at the last minute. They t intended to murder him because he, he was just a pain in the backside, really, and, uh, and was his father's favourite, and, uh, and they got very angry with him. So, but instead of, instead of killing him, thankfully, they didn't kill him, but they did sell him into slavery. But the wicked and despicable thing they did was to tell Jacob that uh, Joseph had died. And because Joseph was Jacob's favourite son, it greatly distressed him and upset him, of course. What a despicable lie to tell your own father. So it just seems to run right through their family, doesn't it? This, uh, this deception and lying. And, you know, they didn't get there in a day. It's not like Abraham kind of set out, you know, to make this a family trait. He didn't say, you know, this is, this is how it is. We're going to use deception and lying in order to uh, make the biggest decisions in our family. Um, that didn't happen. Nobody decided to do it. It just happened and it just was passed from one generation to the next without modification. Now, I imagine that you're thinking about your own family. Um, and if you don't know um, about what those traits are that pass from one generation to the next, those strange behaviors, those, uh, those kind of uh, strange habits that you, you have as families that pass from generation to the next, then don't worry. If you ever get married, you are going to find out what those traits are. When I got to know 
um, Claire's family um, 25 years ago this year. Um, actually, we got married 25 years ago. I got to know them 29 years ago. Um, well, I was kind of like observing all these interesting dynamics. Like uh, Claire's got a brother and a sister, and uh, and obviously I met her grandparents and aunts and uncles, and and. And of course, I was observing all these different things. Why is that person behaving like that? And uh, why do they talk like that? And what's the relationship between that person and that person? And, and I'm seeing all these interesting things. And I'm thinking to myself, well, Claire's family is quite interesting. But then, of course, Claire gets to know my family. And she's noticing all of these weird dynamics with my family that she's not too used to either. Like the, the robust debates that we have over the dinner table, you know, where we, we end up talking about religion and politics and it gets heated and, and, uh, and robust and uh and uh, and we we tend to how we tend to speak our minds to one another and and how that has caused um arguments and conflict and distancing in different uh, not just in our in my close nuclear family but in the wider family as well at different times in our history but of course i'm just used to it uh, but this is just how our family is this is the way our family works it's my family so you will probably know uh, some of the traits in your family, but if you ever get a friend, um, come close to your family or a spouse, you're going to learn some more things about your family as well. But let's look at another example from the Bible. Uh, let's look at King David, who is considered to be the greatest king in Israel's history, um, such that even Jesus was, descended, uh, was said to have descended from him. So he's a really significant figure. But as with as, as anyone who is familiar with David knows, um, David had a character flaw when it came to women. And here's, here's one instance of it in 2 Samuel 11 verses 1 to 5. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of his palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the son, the daughter rather of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went home and the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So, what you should understand first of all about this is that kings should normally go off with their armies to war and it was springtime and that's when they normally would do that. And so David really should have gone off with his army to war. But you know what, with David, he'd already won so many battles that he's clearly had enough. So he sends his top general instead. Uh, now this sort of apathy and idleness is a breeding ground for tragic behavior. I don't know if you've noticed, uh, but when we are idle and apathetic, we tend to make tragic mistakes. As the Second World War American commander, um, General Patton said, uh, writing to his troops, he said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. So David is idle, he's apathetic, and a beautiful woman captures his attention. And in that moment, he loses his mind and tells his servants to bring that woman to the palace effectively so that he can have sex with her. After this, it seems like David's kind of consumed with guilt and he tries to right the wrong. Um, he recalls Uriah from the battle. Um, he encourages him to go home to his wife. Um, and this is what happens. So in verse 10, uh, David, it says, David was told that Uriah didn't go home. So he says to Uriah, 
haven't you just come from the military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and the Lord, my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go home to my own house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Oh, David, your plan to cover up your mess is really not going well. Uriah is so much more honorable than you are. Clearly what David is hoping for is that Uriah will go home from the battle. He hasn't seen his wife for months. And the first thing he's going to do is make love to her, thereby conceiving a baby and then covering up the fact that even though Bathsheba is already pregnant, it's Uriah the father rather than David. Clearly they didn't have DNA tests in those days. So, so, so David's plan to cover up his mess has just gone really badly wrong. Why? Because Uriah is an honorable man. So what does the king do when he's trying to cover up and trying not to take responsibility for his actions? He does something even worse and he conspires with his top general Joab and he tells Joab to send Uriah back into the battle. He says, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. Which is exactly what happened. And after Bathsheba's period of mourning, uh, David took her to be his wife, whether she liked it or not, and to, of course, add her to the collection of wives, I think seven wives that he already had. What a mess. What a mess. Now, unsurprisingly, David's attitude towards women is echoed in the lives of some of his sons. David sowed a seed in his family that men could do what they wanted to to women. So, for example, his eldest son, Amnon, well, he raped his half-sister, Tamar, because he was so consumed by her. And in revenge, another of David's sons, Absalom, who was actually Tamar's full sister, well, he just murdered Amnon. Amnon, rather. Another son uh, of David, Solomon, was, who was actually the son of Bathsheba, he was so obsessed with women that he reportedly had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, just, just for those of you that are familiar with the Bible, don't let your familiarity and possible fondness for Solomon and, of course, for his famed wisdom um, and some of the books that you know, are uh, attributed, to him, to, attributed to him in the Bible. Um, but don't, don't let your familiarity with him obscure the reality that he was a man who had a thousand wives and concubines, a thousand wives and concubines. How could he have done anything but use them as a commodity? His own attitude to women was shaped probably by his father's attitude to women. And, in, in, and sadly, of course, the reality is, is that many of those women would have been what we call today sex trafficked to join his harem. And many of them were, were foreign. He had a particular fondness for foreign women. So they would have been um, transported from their countries to just be part of Solomon's harem. You see how David's attitude to women just found it's an echo, it replicated itself in his sons. And, and actually, if you look further into uh, the accounts of the kings that are descended from David, you'll see that uh, other equally terrible things happened in those generations. You can read story after story in the Old Testament of the impact of parents on their children, on their grandchildren, and on their great-grandchildren. And actually, in the Old Testament, you can see it right through generations beyond even great-grandchildren. But 
here's the thing. In our present culture, we value independence, don't we? Uh, multiple generations no longer generally live in the same house. Some traditions they still do, but generally they don't now. Uh, we spend less time with our parents. Um, uh, kids are encouraged just to break free from their parents in, and uh, chart their own course. Um, parents, children, uh, even siblings, they all end up living in different cities and even different countries from one another. But you know, one of the realities of life is that we cannot run from the fact that our first formation experiences, first three, five years of our lives, which are the most important times in terms of formation of a child or in terms of, an, of, a, of a human being, those formative times, we are in a family. And that has a massive impact on who we are. And we're kidding ourselves if we think it doesn't. Of course, some of us are afraid to look into the past. Some of us have already done that. We've been in long-term counseling because of the wounds, the pains, the terrible things that have happened to us when we were children. And many of us carry traits and habits of being and behaviors and attitudes and feelings of self-esteem and self-confidence that were formed in our childhood. And we don't actually even know that, or we don't acknowledge that. We've never done any work to understand why that is. Anyone who's been through counselling um, or is going through counselling knows that until we actually acknowledge the past, it's very difficult to move on to the future. And I think the Gospel of Jesus offers hope. Hope to those of us who are wanting to move forwards, unhindered by perhaps our first formation experiences as children. Um, we're going to turn to John 3 verses 1 to 5. If you've got that in, you've got your Bible open. Now there was a Pharisee named uh, a man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council and he came to Jesus at night and he said Rabbi we know that you are a teacher who has come from God but no one no one could perform the signs that you're doing if God were not with him Jesus replied very truly I tell you no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again well how can someone be born when they are old Nicodemus asked surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born Jesus replied very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Uh, this story here is where Christians get the term born again, so the you know, born again Christian sort of thing. That's where this comes from. And there's a heavy emphasis here on starting over. You see, when we have an emotional experience, uh, no matter what, what, when that happens in our life, it could have happened yesterday, uh, or, you know, obviously we were talking about an experience that could have happened in our childhood. There's, a, there's this sense of where we make a meaning out of that experience. And from that meaning, we usually uh, make a vow. Now, that might be a vow to repeat something. So it might be that we have a pleasant experience and we go, that was good, I want to do that again. Um, and so, you know, you might, you know, as a child, you might eat uh, a certain brand of sweets and you go, that was great, that made me feel great, that's the meaning, they're good, they make me feel great, I'm going to repeat that experience, I'm going to buy those sweets every time I go to the sweet shop. Alternatively, you could have a bad experience and you, 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 um, you sort of make a meaning from that. Uh, that experience might be where you were ridiculed and it might, make, it might knock your self-esteem and it might make you feel that actually you're not, as, you're not very good at something or perhaps you're, um, you know, you're, you're, you're particularly, there's some aspect of your personality that's not particularly likable. And then from that, you make a meaning, which is I am not likable or um, I'm not good at that thing. 
And, um, and what happens is those vows then shape our behavior and they actually scale out. They multiply out as we get older and we carry those things with us. And very often we forget about the first formation and all we're left with is the habit and the trait that kind of echoes through our lives. Let me explain what I mean by that, by a, by a personal story. So when I was four years old, um, a lot, like a lot of kids, uh, or it seems to me because I noticed it, but um, a lot of kids, I developed a strabismus in my left eye. So my left eye stopped tracking my right eye. And you can probably, so those of you that know me probably can tell that it's still not perfect even uh, today, particularly if I'm tired. Um, but back then I had to wear glasses with strong, strong lenses in to try and correct the, get the left eye to work better. I had to wear a, a sticky a plaster patch over one on my, over my right eye over my good eye and then I stumbled around trying to you know see what I could see through my left eye which wasn't very good in order to try and stimulate development in that eye uh, but that didn't work very well and then I had an operation I don't know must have been five years old and um, and that was traumatic in itself but I had a so I had a four-day hospital stay had the operation and then afterwards the eye actually tracked fairly well with my right eye although as I got older it, it got worse again um, as a child, though, the fact that my eye was wonky and also I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't grow particularly quickly. I was a late developer. I'm still only, I'm only about five, eight now, but um, back then I was really small. And um, so but I, I kind of became quite embarrassed about my appearance and, um, and I was, was a target for bullying as well. Now, I had a, a stable, loving family who always encouraged me. And I can remember on one occasion, my mum particularly, I think I was thinking about quitting something I was involved with. I think it might have been the Air Cadets. And I remember her telling me that Owens don't quit. And uh, now, yes, uh, what you should know is that Owens is her maiden name. So she was referring to her own family line. And, um, uh, and, 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 and yes, that's why I'm called Owen, by the way, as well, because my mum didn't have any brothers. So they decided to preserve the family name by giving it to me as a first name. Um, so as she said, Owens don't quit. And I remember that. Uh, particularly, uh, it really stayed with me and, uh, and I'm telling you about it now. So it's obviously something that's quite memorable in my life, but just this kind of vow that, you know, I will not quit. Why? Because I am from, I am most like my mum's side of the family and Owens don't quit. So therefore I'm not a quitter. So I won't quit. Now that's a brilliant, uh, you know, uh, motto for life. Don't quit. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Um, and uh, you know, it was an admirable, it's an admirable thing to, to, you know, to not quit and to be determined. But deep down, I think what developed from that motto or that vow was this sense that my self-respect and my self-worth was, was inextricably linked to my success. Um, and, um, and so if I wasn't successful, I had no respect for myself. Um, and, and even now I can still sense that if I say that I have to be successful and, and if I'm not successful, say I'm not successful, uh, say being a physiotherapist or leading a church or doing whatever I do, then my self-respect, you know, has, has the propensity to drop and my self-confidence dropped and actually, you know, uh, at, at my worst place with this, I would, I would, I would think really badly of myself, um, if I wasn't successful. Now, um, that, that created a bit of a problem for me because as I grew and that multiplied out in my life, what I realized was that I didn't actually have much respect for people that weren't successful because success became like, you know, like the, the, the measure by which I judge myself and other people. It became an idol for me really. So uh, I, I disrespected people that weren't successful and I idolized people that were successful. Uh, and I'm embarrassed to say that I would only give my respect to people who I thought was successful, which was, you know, the height of arrogance really. 
Um, th this in my early life, and, and even now there's traits of it still there, I think, uh, made me a difficult person to live with because I didn't always have respect for the people with whom I worked and I wasn't very good at hiding it. If I didn't think that they were successful, I, I didn't have much respect for them. And um, I was often opinionated um, with my own opinion, um, but I often had little to substantiate my strong opinions. I was desperate to, to succeed and I would subtly attach myself to other people who were successful um, and also attach myself to successful events and, and activities. Um, I would identify my biggest rival and I would try and compete with them and um, I would be uh, thrilled by their failures and crushed by their successes. Um, if I thought I couldn't win or succeed, I would withdraw my commitment and just stand on the sidelines. And I was always pretty much discontented um, because I was either always looking to the future to try and improve on what I'd already done or I was desperately disappointed with what I already uh, had achieved. Um, this was the person I was simply because I made an idol out of success. I repeatedly made a vow that I should be successful and if I wasn't successful then I couldn't respect myself. Now, my born again experience of Jesus, if you like, deepened as I became aware of this deeply held belief that I, uh, I deserved no respect if I wasn't successful. See, here's the wonderful thing about Jesus. Jesus says to you and me, he says, my respect and my love for you is not dependent on you being successful. It's not conditional. Now, of course, there's absolutely nothing wrong with success. But when my whole sense of self-identity is built on being successful, then that will simply destroy me because success has become an idol to me. The gospel of Jesus frees us from our idols. The gospel of Jesus frees us from those vows that will destroy us if we continue to work them out in our lives. The gospel of Jesus is that you and I, well, we are worthy of respect and love simply because God respects and loves us. And that's completely unconditional. There is nothing that you and I can do uh, to, to make God love us more or there's nothing that we can do to make him love us less. His love is completely unconditional on our behavior. And, and what Jesus says is, when he says to Nicodemus, you need to be born again, what he's saying is, is that we need to reform those first formation experiences um, and, and, and we need to remake them in the light of God's unconditional love. Here's the thing. Jesus wants to break the cycle of habits of behavior that have been passed from generation to generation without any modification. Jesus wants to break the cycle of destructive patterns of behavior that you have received from uh, unwittingly from just being part of your family. He wants to break in. And there's no condemnation here. There's no one to blame here. I mean, you know, obviously that's not entirely true. There are people who will have wounded others and hurt us who need to repent of those things and in order for us to be reconciled to them. But the reality is, is that we often absorb these things without even realizing it. So the question I want to ask you today is, what unhelpful first formation experiences still shape your reality today? What patterns of behavior have you inherited from your parents or your grandparents or uncles and aunts that still cause havoc in your life today? There's going to be good things that you've experienced that are patterns that are, you know, you'll pass on to the next generation. But there will be patterns of behavior there that have come about through pain and suffering of the previous generation 
um, through the willful disobedience of, of people in the previous generation that have caused ripples, if you like, um, tremors that are passing through every generation. Is your the gen yours the generation to actually modify those things? Are you going to allow Jesus in to actually come and reform in such a way that you're like, it's like you've been reborn, that you're a new person, the person that you were always meant to be before those things started to take hold in your life? So why don't we pray together now in Jesus' name? And this is where, if we were at church, we would bring ourselves to God. And you might want to do that now as well. Next week on this podcast, we'll bring our panel together to chat about how they relate to what we've just heard. And I hope you can join us for that. If you have any questions or anything you'd like to share, email hello at sevenvineyard.org. See you next week.